0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to the conversation. Uh, Wayne Peterson is with us today. He is president of Reach Beyond. You know the ministry um, commonly as uh, HCJB, located in Quito, Ecuador. Of course, this ministry has been global and impacting the world for Christ for a better part of 80 plus something years now. Wayne has written a new book called Reach Beyond, Comfort, Courage, and the Cause of Christ. And as we were articulating prior to the break, while clearly the message of the gospel, the hope of Christ, remains the same, the methodology of how that message is communicated and delivered has changed quite significantly. And and the interesting thing is we've seen this paradigm shift. Uh, Wayne, on the mission field, where now really it's largely the, the tremendous success of nationals uh, that are leading to this almost um, uh, wildfire of of uh, growth of the church in, in many parts of the world. There might be some important lessons that we here in the West can draw from what we're seeing happening in, in places like Central and South America, Asia, China, elsewhere.
2: Well, absolutely, and uh, we are learning from our friends in places like Asia Africa and South America, in some ways, they put us to shame with their boldness. Uh, in parts of North Africa where we work and help deliver programs uh, through uh, satellite, uh, we have local partners on the ground that work below the radar. We don't identify them in any way. Often we disguise their voices. But if I were there, I would be praying like mad for protection. You know what they pray for, Craig? They pray for boldness. Mm. Not safety. And we're so safety conscious in this country, but in that part of the world, they, they just pray, Lord, make us bold in our witness. And they don't take any unnecessary chances. But uh, last year, we had one of our radio uh, producers that uh, was turned into the authorities. They arrested him, put him in jail. Uh, in jail somebody recognized his voice from the radio broadcast and beat him because he was a follower of jesus and through a series of miracles he was released in a couple of months and returned to his family uh... the stories don't always end that way we know that there are people that are arrested beaten and sometimes killed because they follow jesus uh... one of our uh, radio partners in that part of the world was listening to one of our broadcasts uh, on satellite And his father discovered that he was uh, listening and on the website and said, Son, do you really believe this stuff? And he says, Yes, Father, I do. He didn't deny it. He just said, Yes, I believe it. And he beat his son, threw him out of the house uh, with only what he had on his back. And that young man, uh, going through the streets half naked at night, uh, no home, no family, There was a light on in a house and in a country that's less than 1% Christian knocked at the door and a Christian family took him in and uh, healed his wounds and fed him and clothed him and got him into school. Today, this young man is producing programs for us in the Arabic language and reaching his countrymen. I mentioned earlier, uh, we often digitally disguise the voices of those so they won't be recognized, and we offer to disguise his voice. And he says, no. I've already been beaten for following Jesus. You can let my voice go out as it is. So th- this is why I think we can learn something. You know, we have social persecution in this country, and we feel we're discriminated against, and that's true. However, in many parts of the world, uh, becoming a follower of Jesus can cost you your family, your job, or even your
1: life. Yeah, ironically, it is more of a picture of what the first century church looked like, um than certainly anything that we've known of recent years and, and, and maybe perhaps that sense of of purpose that is motivated by uh results, motivated by a passion for Christ and a desire to serve him above above all else. Um, is exactly what the Lord wants of us in, in these uh, these times when uh, there's a better part of, what, almost two and a half billion people that have yet to hear the gospel message. And we know that while certainly a lot of them lie in that, that all-critical 1040 window, uh, growing numbers of them are right here at home, right here as our next-door neighbors in North America, aren't they?
2: Well, and that's the other thing we can learn uh, in this country, because the mission field is now coming to us. And many of the immigrants that are coming to this country, I don't know how you feel about the immigration issue, but many are coming and they are interested in our culture. Many are coming from Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and finding Christ in this country because they're interested in the culture. Many that are coming are already believers and are starting churches, and they have come to this country to escape persecution or to have a better life and starting churches and reaching other immigrants with the gospel. So, uh, I don't think uh, the, the story is over for the United States of America. I think we're going to see a spiritual harvest come here as uh, the rest of the world reaches out to our very materialistic, hedonistic, secular society in this country.
1: And as you point out, the mission field is literally coming to us, and the amazing thing is that then God can use this as these people influence their friends um, and family members back home, wherever their nation of origin might be, and we see the continuing cycle of the outreach of the gospel. Uh, Great book, and if you'd like to get more information about it, um, you can do so by going to reachbeyond.org. That's reachbeyond.org. Take a moment, if you would, Wayne, as our time winds down together, and tell us a bit about the I Refuse campaign.
2: Well, the, uh, I referred to that a bit earlier. The I Refuse is our mission manifesto. And if you go to our website, you'll be able to read that manifesto. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight points. And we're looking for 100,000 followers of Jesus that will go online and sign that manifesto. And the I refuse campaign is we refuse to stand idly by as people enter eternity without Christ, when we can share the good news that transformed them. We refuse to watch people for whom Christ died suffer in pain and poverty, when we can help restore them in his name. We refuse to fear the darkness that entraps people. We'll put on the armor of God and pray for the unreached uh, so that more may come to know Jesus. And if you want to know more about the I refuse, this is a call to the church in America to take a stand, to share the good news with the dark places around the world. And we invite many of your listeners to your show, Craig, that they would go online and sign this manifesto and make that commitment to reach the unreached around the world and even across the street.
1: And again information available on the web at reachbeyond.org that's reachbeyond.org. Wayne's new book by the way of a similar title you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through amazon.com and of course through a reachbeyond.org. Wayne Peterson president of Reach Beyond formerly HCJB thank you for being with us on this segment of Lifeline.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Topic we're all familiar with at least we ought to be if we're honest with ourselves the issue of brokenness is something that all of us have to struggle with at varying times in our lives and varying degrees and you know, the irony is when we when we know broken people when we are in relationships with broken individuals, it could be a spouse, it could be an offspring or a sibling or maybe even an acquaintance, a coworker, the inclination, the tendency is to want to go in and try to fix them. And that's understandable, right? We've been raised in a culture that says when something is broken, you fix it. Uh, men are particularly good at that. They don't want to feel. They don't want to discuss. They just want to get to the heart of the problem and fix it. But some problems cannot so readily be fixed. And then what happens? Well, dependent upon how you deal with it, um, it it could create an atmosphere uh, that is prickly at times and painful, or can be uh, downright chaotic. My next guest knows exactly what that is like. He was raised in a household that was characterized by a sense of brokenness and chaos and stress and turmoil. And he has detailed these experiences and the insights that they have given him um, ultimately in his walk with Christ inside the pages of a new book called All But Normal, Life on Victory Road. Pastor Sean Thornton is senior pastor at Calvary Community Church down south of us in Westlake Village. Also the um, Bible speaker on all things new and Ashley syndicated Christian teaching program he's also a member of the board of directors of one of my favorite organizations Johnny and Friends and Pastor Thornton great to have you on the show
3: Thank you Craig great to be with you and you you really gave a great setup in terms of a brokenness and how people are broken and and the difficulty with trying to fix them sometimes.
1: And we want to, you know, we want to fix them because I think we we desire to to find a life that is normal, whatever that means. I saw the title of your book and it it reminded me of a, a quip that's often shared in uh, her public performances, a Christian comedian, uh, John, Shonda Pierce, who says, "Normal is just a setting on your dryer." We we're we're looking for normal in life, but the reality is, I guess, in man's fallen. Condition, Condition that that brokenness really is normal, and, and sometimes we need to understand that um, everything can be but normal, and yet in and through all of that, the, the question, especially for the believer that needs to be asked is, okay, where do I find God in this, and where can I find a sense of, of peace and joy about myself apart from the chaos that, that swirls around me?
3: Yes, and when you're growing up in it, You've got the identity as a follower of, a, of Christ, of course, that's key to that. And then you've got, you know, there are a lot of kids raised in homes, maybe with a parent with some uh, mental illness, uh, physical difficulty. Maybe there's just conflict in the home and the child experiences the, the roughest edges of divorce as a, as a couple is splitting up and the kids are absorbing so much of it. Or you have substance or alcohol abuse. And so you have children growing up and so they're dealing with their identity in Christ if it's a Christian home. Then they're dealing with their identity as an individual, as a human being, you know, coming through those coming of age years, and that adds another layer to it that, that complicates what is normal and how do we deal with brokenness around us.
1: And there is that, I think, human tendency to want to not only fix things, but also readily so, I think, to assign blame. And it's interesting because yeah. I, I started summing through the book um, last week, and if you kind of pick up halfway through, you think, oh my goodness, I mean, all yeah. of this yeah. tragedy and this chaos yeah. going on here, you know, clearly poor Sean was raised in a home with a drug abuse Use or uh, alcoholism, things of that sort, couldn't possibly be a Christian home. And yet right. you were not only raised in a Christian home by loving parents and there was a sense of, of tremendous dedication. Your mother was even a Sunday school teacher, but it was a, a tragic event. One of those unforeseen gotchas that happened in life that, uh, you know, uh, was the fault of no one, uh, at least in the family, that happened uh, 38 years before your mother ultimately passed that kind of kickstarted all of this. Uh, Share that story, if you would, to kind of give some some perspective for our listener as as to your 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 personal pain and and the, the source of the turmoil in your home.
3: When my mom was 14, she was a believer. She was a part of Youth for Christ Bible uh, studies and youth groups back in the early 60s. And so she was a follower of Christ, a young believer. She was 14. And uh, she had a crush on a a boy, and and he'd invite her to a dance. So they've got this early relationship. And she convinces her parents one day. He's a senior. She's a freshman. He has his driver's license. Let let John just drive me uh, to the department store to return an item. It was 10 or 15 minutes from their home. And uh, the young man, John, drove in front of a pickup truck when he was turning at a, a stoplight. And there was this accident where um, she hit her head on the dashboard, she was unconscious for three months. So she's out from the moment of the accident for three months, she turns 15 in this coma. The young man graduates from high school while she's in the coma. And when she wakes up, her parents realize that she has a different personality. She used to be really easygoing, never could be agitated calm. And now she's got a very agitated personality. She has to learn how to walk and talk all over again. And so uh, this woman who was Beverly Gilvin at the time, my mother, she uh, takes with her into life a lot of physical challenges. She couldn't drive. She couldn't quite walk straight. Uh, She couldn't sign her name very quickly. To pick up a glass would take some focus because there wasn't the physical therapy in 1962 that we have today. So she took physical challenges into life. She took emotional challenges. She'd get upset over very little things and then get calm and then laugh and then be upset again. And then mental illness of depression and almost a bipolar uh, kind of symptoms that were a part of her life. And so um, she she took all that not only into life but then into our family when she got married. And and she married the man who was driving the car, Mm. that young man. That's my father. And so there's a complication even in his life of, do I love her? Am I am you know, marrying her out of guilt? And that kind of continues through my story as well. But but it, all that brokenness comes into our home so that I grew up with a mother who, she could get upset real quick and just start throwing things, screaming. She tried to jump out of a car at high rates of speed to take her own life. Uh, sometimes she grabbed the steering wheel and she get mad at dad or us she pull it and, and uh, pull us into a cornfield or a, uh, you know off the road and almost take our lives. And so that was the constant, not just you know every now and then, but constant tension, brokenness, chaos. And yet she loved the Lord, read her Bible every day, prayed every day. Um, is one of my greatest spiritual heroes. And so it's that kind of conflict. I think Craig there are a lot of folks listening who have wounds of their childhood that, that maybe are similar, not the same in terms of, of uh, events or, or circumstances, but, but the same in terms of the pull on the heart and the struggle they had growing up in, the, in an environment that wasn't quite normal.
1: And, you know, uh, so often, as I suggested earlier, Pastor, this this tendency that we often have to want to try to fix things or to, or, or to assign blame with the notion that, well, somebody out there, Then, if, you, if I can't fix it, then you're responsible for fixing it. And, you know, uh, not to minimize things, but people can go to counseling. People can go and, and get into drug rehabilitation programs, things of this sort. There are times and circumstances where some things can be done to mitigate the impact of what's going on inside of the family environment but this is one as you're suggesting sean that was you know uh, it was an accident it happened as a result of the quite apparent brain injury it ended up literally impacted not only just every part of your mother beverly's life but ultimately your dad's life and and you and your brother troy and and this was not a thing that could be fixed was it
3: no, and you know, in, and back then a couple of things too. You have to remember, like I mentioned, there wasn't a physical occupational therapy. A couple of weeks after she woke up, she was sent home, and she couldn't even really walk mm-hmm. yet. And today, that would be different. You know, the, the we've we've had a lot more advances in areas of physical therapy, speech therapy. We understand traumatic brain injury a lot more because it wasn't even a term until the late seventies, and this happened in the early sixties. And so, even medical doctors would just say. We don't know what's wrong with her. She woke up. She should be fine. Kind of an approach. And now, of course, we see it with the NFL and soldiers coming home from Iraq and and uh, Afghanistan. You know, blows to the head, uh, explosion near the head, uh, those kinds of things leave uh, folks with some some debilitating, and often they get worse over the years. In the case of like football players, as the studies have shown, and um, that happened to my mom, and so there weren't those things that could be a quick fix. She went to our pastor for prayer. She went to counselors. She went to medical doctors. And um, they did what they could. I liked your word, mitigate, because there were were things we learned over the years, especially when we started figuring out what mom's issues were, where we would work hard, my dad, my brother, and I, to not create an environment to set her off, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, to upset her. We weren't good at it. Two boys coming through the teen years with, with a dad who, worked at the factory all day and come home and he could be kind of agitated himself. And then he, like you said, he was passionate mentally, emotionally, even spiritually about fixing her. But often his attempts to fix her, and this is true of most of us, we try to fix broken people that, that maybe there's, there's a wound they have till they're with Jesus, but we try to fix broken people. Sometimes we add fuel to the fire when we do it, you know, for our own, uh, comfort or for own conscience sake you know my dad i think dealt with a lot of guilt through the years and he always wanted to kind of fix mom and that added to it so he'd argue with her or he'd if she shoved him he'd shove her if she threw something in him he'd throw something back and and that kind of environment is hard for any child to grow up in and uh, and to see god in the midst of that but i did i, I, I saw god in his grace in the midst of that it wasn't always easy as you said by thumbing through the middle of the book when you said that i thought oh boy when you just plop down the middle of of all but normal, (laughs) you can run into anything. Um, um, But it was Johnny Erickson Tata who encouraged me, along with Max Lucado, to actually write the book. Um, I told my story to Johnny, and she was fascinated because often we have the stories of parents telling the story of having a child with special needs, but she said there aren't a lot of insights from the perspective of a child with a mother or father of special needs or mental illness or physical difficulty. Um, so she really encouraged that because, as you you know, we know from her life, uh, God has chosen not to heal her, and so she, she has been used by God in her wheelchair, in her brokenness. And sometimes she told me it's very frustrating, and she loved how I expressed that frustration from the Side of
1: the child, and, and to begin to understand as well that not only do we need to embrace the sense that there are some things that we cannot fix in in God's greater design, um, and I and I, you know with the the disclaimer, the caveat. Now we see through a glass darkly, right? But sometimes within God's design, um, being influenced by that brokenness around us is a tool that he can use in order to do a great work in our own lives, not to just teach us how to love the difficult to love, the sometimes unlo- unlovable individuals in our lives, but also what is the greater good that we can extract from that experience? And we're going to talk about that as our conversation continues. If you've just tuned in, we're visiting today with a senior pastor of Calvary Community Church in Westlake Village down south and southern california he's also the speaker on the nationally syndicated all things new radio broadcast and a member of the board of directors of johnny and friends he's pastor sean thornton the book is called all but normal life on victory road we'll take a brief time out come back to more of our conversation as lifeline continues
0: and now back to lifeline with craig roberts
1: Welcome back to our visit, Pastor Scott Thornton, our guest, Senior Pastor at Calvary Community Church of Westlake Village. The new book is called All But Normal, Life on Victory Road. Um, There seems to be, as you suggest in the book, a book. Pastor Sean there is this sense that your mother had a I'll call it a pool of anger that she seemed to, to dip into or draw from sometimes it seemed to be uh, endless or bottomless and she could act out at different times in different places uh, and in pretty severe ways I mean throwing things and temper tantrums and threatening to throw your father out and all of it and you characterize the the difference between the way you sort of reacted to all of this or handled it and the way your brother uh, tried Troy did, where where he kind of, uh, what's the old adage, water off a duck's back.
3: (laughs) Yeah, he says I made him out to be a sociopath. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But um, I think it's showing a difference, I perceived, and we've had a lot of discussions. He's very happy with the book and supports it. But his perspective on things was, you know, I was the firstborn, and I was trying to fix it, just like we were talking Mm -hmm. about firstborn, I'm trying to be the peacemaker between my parents. I'm trying to engage in, in resolving mom's issues and helping dad and calming dad, calming mom. And Troy's kind of looking at me, which is typical of the, the younger child, like, what are you doing? You're you're, you're not going to get anywhere. We just got to bide our time and get out of here away. Uh, you know, but there were times he tried to help, of course. But, but my perception as a kid was always, I'm leaning in to try to fix this, and Troy saying we can't fix this. Just lean back, and there's probably truth between us somewhere.
1: You know, this notion of trying to fix a broken life, I think, is a frustrating one because it not only makes us confront um, our own mortality, our own uh, sense of, of limitations, the fact that things cannot always be fixed, but then it also leads to that very frustrating question, and that is, well, if I can't fix it, then what? Uh, she yeah. is your mother no way around it. I mean, even if your dad, uh, John, decided that's it, I'm going to divorce from the woman and be done with it, she would have always been the mother of his two sons. She will always be your mother. And so if you can't fix it, how do you relate to it? How do you say, okay, God, what is there in all of this turmoil and chaos and pain and brokenness that you want to use in my life?
3: Yeah, I think you you nailed it. It goes back to even what Joseph said about his brothers 22 years later when they show up and they think he's going to take his life because of what they did to him and throwing him in that pit and then selling him into slavery. He said, uh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In this case, I don't know if there was evil intent. There, there was an accident that occurred that left us with the personal consequences. But I still, even as a child growing up, we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We were that kind of family. We were very involved, and what was good for us was that that church in Sunday School, Awana, the various ministries, taught us that God is doing something. And I I started as a young kid, and my brother, too, he's a pastor now as well, and we looked at our circumstances and said, okay, what is God teaching us? I, I, I wasn't real sophisticated, I was a kid. But I started to see the hand of God, and also my parents both leaned into the Lord. My mom would and holler and get my dad off to the factory in the morning. It would be chaos and noise and throwing things, and then she'd sit down and read her Bible and pray. And my dad would take, in his lunch pail, an our daily bread and wrap it up in the thermos and the clip. At the factory at lunch, he would read his, his daily bread and talk to the Lord. And so the trajectory of their lives, even in all the brokenness, came through more than the individual moments or collection of moments that were chaos. I hope you understand what I'm saying. And somehow, that just stood out for my brother and I, and and God showed that to us and allowed us to hold on to that trajectory of both my mom and dad in their brokenness.
1: You acknowledge that God had a plan in all of this. Were there ever any times, Sean, when you wrestled with God by saying, God, I know you have a plan, but it's not my plan or I don't like your plan?
3: (laughs) Very much so. As a matter of fact, the prologue of the book, And then again later, the worst night of my life, I'm 14 and just chaos breaks out in the other room and my dad sends us to our bedrooms. And my mom eventually after mirrors coming down, glass breaking, them shoving, screaming, cussing, a policeman comes and takes my mom away at 14. And uh, she goes into an institution for several months and that night she was taken out. I didn't know if our family would ever come back together. And I remember laying there bawling looking at the corner of, of the ceiling tile in my room at 14 and saying, God, why am I in this house? Why wasn't I born in my neighbor's house or my cousin's house or a kid at school? They have a good, normal family. By the way, later I found out most of those people did not have normal families. <laughs> Everybody had some brokenness somewhere. Uh, but I remember just begging God and going to sleep crying that night, December 28, 1980. I describe it in the book. It was, And I know folks who are listening in, in the Bay Area there where you are Many of them remember those kinds of moments in their childhood. And somehow God, there was no audible voice, there was no, you know, Jesus standing at the foot of my bed, but God met me in that moment. I can't even find words to describe how I fell asleep crying, asking God why, and this didn't make sense. But yet, he gave me comfort, and in the next few years, he would call me into ministry and move me down that path.
1: And amazing that you are able now to comfort others in the same fashion by which you were comforted in the yeah. middle of your own pain and turmoil and understanding, you know, the, the, the truth that, uh, that all of us, I think, deep down realize, but we are... Um, Hesitant to acknowledge or embrace, and that is, you know, um, even though we may think, gee, I wish our family was more like the family next door, that they never scream and yell, the cops never show up at their door at 3 o'clock in the morning, they don't make scenes of fights, you know, out in the front yard and things of this sort. But, you know, what about the family that, no, does none of that, but has a father, for example, who comes home every day from work. He's a workaholic. He's totally indifferent. He's not engaged Mm -hmm. with, with his family. He doesn't pay any attention to his children. He's he's completely emotionally detached from them i mean Mm -hmm. that seems on the outside to be more quote unquote normal but in the reality is it's like well gee i mean void of any sense of of engagement or passion is that really any worse than the scenario of of the the the, the childhood that you were raised in i would suggest probably not
3: i'm i'm in agreement with you that's part of what i tell in the story as a little kid i thought this was normal i get to be nine or ten and i'm making excuses for it to my friends who are coming to play at our house because our house was trash. Mom couldn't clean. And then by the time I'm in my early teen years, I'm begging God to get me into some other family. But late in my teen years and into my college years, I start realizing, wait a minute, all these families that looked picture-perfect Christian families, now some of them are divorcing, and some of, their, some of their kids are having some deep, crazy issues, and I started realizing, wait, we're all broken. We're all in this journey. And my life verse is Second Timothy one twelve. And I love it. Paul's in jail and he doesn't know a lot, but he says, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I committed unto him against that day. And for me, I couldn't explain it all. And even as a teenager, God gave me that verse and I've latched onto it. I still can't explain it all. I never told my story until this book. I didn't even tell close friends any of my upbringing. They're shocked by it. Our home church folks are shocked by it, but they're encouraged too but um, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day even in my brokenness. One day I'll be made whole. One day you'll be made whole as a follower of Christ in the presence of Christ. And to me that's great hope in the midst of this broken world.
1: It strikes me that the big operative word here as you sort of are now in your adult years capable of taking a step back, the so called 30,000 foot high view on all of this, that the operative word here is perspective. And so many of us go through life with a very narrow perspective, distorted perspective, flesh based perspective, through our own eyes perspective, uh, very, very limited, very finite. And yet, when we're able to see and begin to embrace God's perspective, that much bigger picture, then suddenly not only do our attitudes change but our hearts change. And you know, as you delineate pastor, you you would have changed your circumstances. Could who have, you know, go to the next door neighbor and say, "Hi, how would you like to adopt me?" All of us I think would love to escape our circumstances, but if we are incapable of changing our circumstances, Is there something that we can do to change our perspective of those circumstances? I'm going to ask Pastor Sean Thornton to stay with us for one more moment because I want to come back to that very key topic to kind of put a bow around this entire conversation, and that is in the midst of the pain and the brokenness and the frustration and, yes, sometimes the anger and the wailing and gnashing of teeth and the throwing of pots and pans, if you can't readily change your circumstances, and I think that describes life for a lot of us, then what can we do to change our perspective and to embrace God's viewpoint, God's understanding, God's perspective on this? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: And we jump back into the conversation here with Pastor Sean Thornton. He is senior pastor at Calvary Community Church of Westlake Village and the author of a new book called All But Normal, Life on Victory Road. I think we can all relate to a lot of what Pastor Sean has shared. We all find ourselves at varying times in life, in circumstances that we wish we could just wave the proverbial magic wand and escape from. um, And yet understanding what God wants from us and has for us in and through these circumstances, um, I think can not only be uh, tremendously encouraging, but also can give you a tremendous sense of hope for those sets of circumstances that you can't control, that you can't readily wave that magic wand and make all better or make simply go away. So then it becomes a matter of beginning to understand and appreciate what is God's perspective on where I am and how can I learn from that? And that, I think, goes to the heart of, I think, at many levels, Pastor, what you're trying to share inside your new book, All But Normal, that a lot of it has to do with how God wants us to see things and then what we can take out of that that can be applied to our life, to our relationships, and ultimately to our relationship with our Creator.
3: Yeah, definitely. And, Craig, you talked a few moments ago, you talked about perspective and how, that you know, from God's perspective, over time there's something beautiful, beautiful being woven. I remember Corey Timboom, the Holocaust survivor, used to travel and hold up a stitchery, and uh, she'd show the backside of this needlepoint. It was all threads and knots and colors, and she'd have people try to guess what the image was, and they couldn't tell. Then she'd turn it around, and it was a beautiful stitchery of a crown. And she'd say, from our human perspective, we're looking at the backside mm. of the stitchery that God is weaving in our lives. And that God sees a beautiful tapestry He's putting together, even when we don't. And so, as a kid going through what I went through, or anybody going through, which we do at different seasons of life, brokenness and pain and heartache, we we have to, when we can't see God's hand in it, we have to trust His heart and His His uh, grace in the midst of all that. And for me, as a kid, I've kind of learned to do that, uh, wrestling with God, if you will, and with the things I've been taught in youth group and Sunday school in Iwana. And then I saw it come together as a pastor and as a follower of Christ as I studied Scripture in Bible college and seminary. So I, I started seeing in the Psalms a pattern that David lived—a very simple pattern that I think helped him gain perspective when Saul was chasing him, when he was overwhelmed, thought, but God had forgotten him at times and uh, felt overwhelmed by his circumstances. He would tell God how he felt. I mean, you read the Psalms; he cries out and basically says many times when he's in bad situations, "God, my life stinks." I don't get it. And I think we have to, uh, as believers, understand God gives us the grace to tell him how we feel. That's a part of helping get perspective, is just telling him how we feel. Now, some people get stuck there, so David often in his psalms moves to the next phase where he praises God for who he is, because no matter how he feels, God hasn't changed, so he chooses to worship, just like Job did when he was hit by the circumstances that seemed overwhelming. And, um, and then we, we can't stop there. David, uh, I think specifically when he was in the cave of Agilam running from Saul and he'd been drooling in his beard before his enemies, David not only told God how he felt and said, God, this hurts, it stinks. I feel like I just want to give up and throw in the towel, but I'm going to praise you. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to sing of you among the nations. Then he went from telling God how he felt, praising God for who he was, to serving God by helping others. I love the story when David's in the cave of Agilam and says, while he's there, God sends to him all the people in distress, in debt, or who are discouraged in Israel. They come to him at the cave. And, you know, just what you want when you've had a cold, dark cave experience is a bunch of losers showing up at your door. <laughs> but, but God gives him these, and it says he becomes the captain of them. And then that's the, the Psalm 34. We believe he says to those people who gather when he says, Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. And I think uh, for us to gain perspective, it's okay to pour out your heart. I cried out to God many times. I do it still when I suffer loss, when my mom died, or when we go through uh, dark waters as a family or deep things in the church ministry. You tell God how you feel, then you intentionally move past that and begin to praise Him for who He is. And then you look around for others who are hurting that you can serve. And then it's after I move through that process and over time I begin to see what God was doing Mm. in that Dark time, and it helps to gain perspective. If you just try to gain perspective in the moment, like you're you're falling in a free fall, and you're trying to grab the sides of the cliff to understand why you're in this situation. Um, just to say, I'm going to get perspective. You really can't. It takes time. So that's why I really believe in telling God how you feel, praising God for who He is, and then serving God by helping others.
1: And the sense of perspective, um, I, I think, to to. Uh to help really um, couch this properly for those listening. The perspective is not the end game. The perspective helps. But isn't it true that in the ultimate analysis of this. God is first and foremost about redemption. He is in the redemptive business. He sent his only son to die on the cross, that through his substitutionary work, we as his creation as as fallen mankind might be redeemed. And so God seeks to engage in this business of redemption at so many levels. And uh, let's be clear about this. It's not simply the redemption of our soul, but in some ways I would imagine that as you look back upon your childhood what your mom went through. The pain that she experienced, the pain that because of her injury and the resulting illness was brought upon your dad and your your sibling, uh, if we could just say, okay, well, I understand it now. I have perspective on it. Well, that's okay, but it kind of leaves you on a downer note. But it sounds to me like you're beginning to also experience here a manner in which God has been able to redeem your past, so to speak, by putting it to good use for his glory and to help others.
3: Yes, uh, you're, you're, I'll tell you, Craig, you're, you're right on, because as a result of this, there was originally an epilogue, it's going to be the book, that addressed right what you're saying, but as the editors and I looked at it, we decided that would be better as a, a book later, that would be more the teaching. This is my story. And so I'm I'm preparing a series this fall, and we'll be teaching called Wounded for Good, and the subtitle is what you just said, Letting God Redeem... the the brokenness of your past. And he has redeemed my story, and now he's using it for my good, the good of others, and his glory. And and I think that's what he did with Joseph. I think that's what he does with uh, Job, as Job moves through all of the brokenness. I I think it's what he is doing. You're right, he is a God of redemption. He's redeeming our eternal souls. We even know that the earth is groaning, Romans 8 says, and it's longing for the day that it'll be made right. You know, the, the resurrection was the beginning uh, of the end of the curse and the groaning and the pain and the brokenness. And right now he's demonstrating that in individual lives. And, and a story I put on the shelf and thought, nobody cares about my story because it shaped who I was and they're getting the secondary benefits of it but I'm not gonna tell anybody. And when I shared it with John Erickson Todd and she said, I think your story can help others. Now I'm discovering I almost get emotional about it that he's redeemed my story for my good, the good of others and his glory and and it's a process where he worked on me and he's molded me and made me more like Jesus through the process.
1: And it was amazing I can imagine the reaction by many of the disciples who watched cross Christ nailed on that cross and when we let out that final gasp they, they must, as they were fleeing, thought to themselves, "All is lost; this is all for naught. Uh, none of this is of any value now because our 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 Lord is dead, and yet then, three days later, come to the realization that Christ redeemed all mankind. Through his law, his death on the cross, and that God redeemed his son by literally bringing him back to life again, so that even in the most serious and sad and seemingly hopeless set of circumstances that oftentimes we call our life. That God yeah. is capable of coming in and stepping down and saying, you know, I, I am about redemption at so many levels, not just redeeming our our, 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 our very beings from, um, from separation from God eternally by punishment in hell because of our sin nature, but that God wants to redeem every aspect of our lives so yeah. that while in the moment it maybe made no sense and it seemed to be a complete, utter, total loss and waste. Yet in the end, as we gain that perspective, God begins to show us that I'm going to use this to not only help others, but to redeem that pain, that agony that you went through. And and that's I mean, that's that's the beautiful part of the of the gospel story.
3: Yeah, and just hearing you say it and put it in that context, my story that he has redeemed fits into the overall redemption story. And I'm not trying to minimize or be cutesy about it. But as you just described it, it's linked to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the hope I have is rooted in the hope of that redemptive plan that he carried out in behalf of the Father. And, you know, looking at my story in print was very hard for me. I could have written this in six months, but it took three and a half years. I had a very skilled co-writer, Joel Kilpatrick. And, and we could have done it probably in six months, but I would see my story in black and white, and tears would, would, would you know hit the printed page I printed a chapter on because I'm reliving some of this. But now, as I've gone through the process, I can tell you God has redeemed my story and I was, is, is using it for my good and the good of others. And I do believe in the brokenness of our family's pain and my mom's inner torment that she had, God is being glorified and it, it, it is something that only God could do by His grace.
1: Amen. And you know, we all have stories to tell. Um, we all have that personal pain, that brokenness that we spoke of earlier um, that is a part of the fabric of our lives in, in so many layers and so many levels. And yet every bit of it is not beyond the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. And so um Think about the way in which God is redeeming you and redeeming your past and and how that as you study to show yourself approved, as you draw closer to him, that God will give you greater perspective on all of these matters. And then through that perspective, you can begin to see the redemption that takes place that in and through all that pain, God redeems it and then uses it for his glory and and ultimately, you can be used as a wonderful tool of his. It's a great book. It's, it's a hard-to-read book in the sense that I think a lot of us see brokenness, especially anybody who's gone through turmoil in, in childhood, divorced families, um, parents or siblings that struggle with, with either mental illness or, or substance abuse, whatever the case might be, or even the so-called ha, normal family wink-wink that you know was not really normal. Um, you can see yourself inside of the book, but most importantly, you can see... God's Redemption. All But Normal, Life on Victory Road, a memoir. Again, the book newly published by Tyndale House, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through the usual suspects, too, like Amazon.com. You can also get it online through Pastor Thornton's website, allbutnormal.com. That's allbutnormal.com. And our thanks to Pastor Sean Thornton, Senior Pastor at Calvary Community Church of Westlake Village, for being with us and sharing his story on this edition of Lifeline.